are you driving that car? Yes, sir. Yes, yes, sir, I am. And he just like, I can't believe you put me in this position. What do you mean? Maybe it was even after like two rounds. Because I remember Larry telling me, he's like, what do you mean? What do I mean? You aren't old enough to drive this car. You don't have a driver's license. And you've done beat four of my customers. What do I do with them? Like, if I'm supposed to kick you out. What do I do with them? I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. I don't, I don't know, Larry. It's time for Class Racing Today, the podcast for the NHRA Class Racing fan. Welcome back to Class Racing Today, classracingtoday.com. Today, December 1, here in the CRT podcast studio, uh, all the way from Millbank, South Dakota, uh, and somewhere in New Jersey. Uh, Bobby and Brian are here with us, classracingtoday.com. If you go there today, uh, we have a very basic new website that's up, so go to classracingtoday.com, and you get to see Brian and Bobby's cars sitting there doing some some wheelies a little bit, Um, but... <clears throat> there is also the opportunity for you, as a listener to the show, to support the show uh, directly. There's a donate option there. All uh, all your support is very appreciated and welcome. Any amount is awesome. Um, if you get value out of the show, whatever that value is, turn that into a dollar amount and send it our way. We appreciate it very much so we can keep doing these conversations around uh, the drag racing world. Brian, what are we doing? How are you today? Man. I have not been able to sleep because <laughs> I wanted to try to mix it up a little bit. And I met today's guest about officially a year ago. And it's probably the single best thing I've done to learn how to race. So I'm like, you know what? How can we share this? How can we help everybody? Not you D5 people. It's okay if you shut it off right now because <laughs> I don't want you getting any better. You're already killers. <laughs> But I thought, you know, how can I help Bobby win another national event? You know, he has a Ford, so he needs all the help he can get. And the guy we have coming on today is is pretty cool. When he was at Brainerd, I just saw that car back and forth, back and forth. And thank God he wasn't in Stock Eliminator that day. So, Bobby, are you excited? I am thrilled. I, I haven't been this excited in a while because I, you know, I love learning things. And, uh, I'm excited. I, I know I'm going to learn something today that I'm going to take with me, you know, forever here with my, uh, driving and, you know, I could always use, I could always use a little help. Let's just say that. So, um, let's welcome him. Let's waste no time here. Mr. Luke Bogacki. How you doing, sir? Great. Thank you guys for having me on. I, uh, I'm, I, listened to the show a couple of times i didn't realize until i got in here with you guys like how professional an approach this is this is night and day from the podcast that i'm used to <laughs> you guys are doing a great job with this this is cool thank you i don't know i think you have probably quite a few more listeners than than we do so we'll uh, we'll just merge the two ideas and i'm i'm curious before we get started brian how did you guys get together from opposite ends of the country um so I know virtually nothing about racing. I've just kind of started and thought, hey, let's jump into Stock Eliminator. And I used to listen to uh, Class Racing Podcast, Chuck and Aaron did. And that's how I was like trying to just suck in information as much as I could. And all of a sudden it was gone and they weren't doing it. And I'm like, man, is somebody doing something? And I actually helped Craig build this studio 
four years ago? I'm like, what are we doing? It's 2017. He's like, oh, we're building a podcast studio. I'm like, what the hell's a podcast? <laughs> like, I don't know what it is. So we built this cool little room, and I don't know. I just like to ramble on and learn about new things. So I thought, hey, let's do one. And then I randomly posted somewhere. I'm like, is there a podcast for stock at Superstock? Somebody should do one. I didn't even know that that other one existed with um, Aaron and Chuck. So I, I felt like a dummy saying that. And then Brian called me up and said, hey, I live in South Dakota. I have all the equipment. Let's do a podcast. And that's basically how it happened. We didn't even meet each other in person until like six months into the podcast. Awesome. And here you are, what, 50 episodes later? Almost. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Very cool. And the biggest thing is like, I just wanted to do, you know, I wanted to try to do the best quality we can because, you know, it's, I don't know, I just feel like the, I'm obviously probably not the most professional person, but you know what? I wanted it to sound right, look good, and just try to spread the, spread as much information as we can and try to grow, you know, class racing and talk about it. And there's just not really an outlet, you know, the, the sportsman side gets a lot of love and our little niche market we have just, everybody loves to talk about it. I mean, you go talk to any guy that has a class car and you can be tied up for hours on end. So just thought it was a good, good way to spread the message. No, a hundred percent agree. You guys are doing an awesome job and I would love to see more of this type of show. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like to your point, there's so many corners, so many niches within our sport that don't get the spotlight that they deserve. And you guys doing your part for stock and super stock, like there, there should, these are relatively easy things to do, you know, as a, as a, as a podcast host, I know that the time suck and, and there's some energy that goes into it, but it's not uh, cost prohibitive and it's not all that difficult to put together. Like uh, people, I, I think there's a ton of opportunity here to, to shed that spotlight in so many areas that it's, uh, that it's warranted. There you should, guys are doing that. There should actually be a disclaimer, uh, disclaimer. You're starting a podcast. You just lost 75% of your life. <laughs> click here to accept this responsibility like everything's it's easy like oh man you just call each other and talk like they don't see the other 15 hours of editing and that's like you win in a race right somebody sees the seven win lights they're like oh there's nothing to that they don't see the the hundreds of hours that went into getting competitive you know yeah podcasting's <laughs> similar in that regard for sure <laughs> yeah, i'm just trying not to fanboy out because i do like to listen to your podcast and like i said anytime you can you can reach out and you can just pull something. I mean, it's kind of amazing. I uh, Some of the stuff I've learned just from listening to your podcast and the mental game and stuff, like it has some real life applications. I was, I ended up on a crazy mission this weekend that in Vegas at a competition, nothing related to racing. And I'm like, all right, I need to hydrate. I'm going to go to bed. You know, you're in Vegas. Everybody's going to the strip. I'm like, no, it's 930. I'm going to my room. I need to be sharp. I want to make the right decisions. And I'm like, man, if Luke knew what I was doing and how I'm using his statistics or his, his approach right now, nobody would believe it. But I would assume that the, the definition of hydration that many of your uh, competitors were using at Vegas was, was slightly different than your own. Uh, yeah. Like, and I don't drink anyway, so I'm, uh, I'm hitting the water pretty hard and I'm like, all right, we got to be sharp. I'm going to try to bump it up an extra gallon today. And everybody else, one guy showed up at four o'clock in the morning and he's literally paying 200 bucks a run and just a mess. And his results kind of proved it. I mean, it was just, you know, there's just little details that the pregame work just to pay for, you know, I would say it costs the same whether you suck or not. So why not just try to be the best, right? Yeah. I like that approach for sure. <laughs> well, let's, uh, 
we could banter all day long, but I'm just kind of curious. Tell how how did you get started in drag racing? I mean, walk us through the Luke at a little boy age. Have you always been cool hand, or did that come on and later in life? The the nickname actually came from a a fellow competitor in uh, in Texas when I was growing up, and it just kind of stuck. I think because I leaned into it, my dad definitely leaned into it. But my dad is how I got started uh, in racing, Brian. I, I but father raced um, from the time before I was born, and actually his uh, his background was was more in class racing. You know, go back to the uh, modified production days and a little bit of super stock and stock back in the um, 60s and 70s. Um, dabbled in top alcohol funny car for a little while by the time that i came along he was more or less committed to um bracket racing uh, i was born in southern california so bracket racing there at that time looked a little bit different than what we're used to today like it was a uh, five tenths pro tree uh staggered start you know that was the norm or that's what i that's my earliest memories of uh, of watching racing and watching him race but yeah i would i would imagine i uh and like some of those people that say, you know, like, yeah, my first trip to the track, I was like two weeks old. I don't know exactly when that was, but it was very early in life. And um, I just remember idolizing my father in a way that I think most children do. But a lot of that for me kind of built around racing and how much of a, a superhero he was to me, like to get in the car and go down the racetrack. Um, and, and I just remember not only putting him on a pedestal, but having a reverence for the, the sport and as I learned more about it, the game for, from, for as long as I can remember, you know, from a really young age, my dad used to always tell stories about uh, walking around at a swap meet with him. And I'm like four years old and I, my overalls and, and just walk up to, to some, uh, some vendor and just serious as a heart attack walk up. Hey, how much you want for that blower? You know, like stuff like that. So I was that kid. That's pretty awesome. What, what was, uh, what was your introduction? Like, how, what was your first trip down the track? Do you remember? Or? Not to actually driving? Yep. Yeah, so NHRA um, announced or, or implemented the Junior Dragster program. I want to say in 92 was when um, Vinny Knapp rolled that out in uh, Englishtown. It hit our area or, or our local track. By that time, um, my parents had relocated to Texas, and that's probably the area that I would call home still to this day. It's... Uh, we moved there when I was in third grade and lived there uh, in the same home until I graduated college. And then I moved to Alabama and ultimately up to Illinois where I live now. Um, but uh, our home track, Texas Raceway, implemented the junior program at the beginning of 93. And I had, um, my, my dad was all over it, which I was obviously pressuring him pretty hard at that point. I was 11. And um, so I had one of the first cars in our area. And uh, my first trip down the track, I was trying to, to remember the timeline of this because now I can't really imagine just going out there and just being completely thrown to the wolves. But I don't remember like testing. Like I think my first run down the track was the time trial at the first race that was ever contested at Texas Raceway, you know, first junior drag race. So um, there was eight of us, all racers kids, obviously at that point. None of us had any idea what we were doing, um, but one of my favorite stories and like claim to fame was that I won that race. It was literally the first time that I ever raced. It was awful. I, and I try to tell my kid, uh, my, my oldest son, Gary, has is, is just started his junior career. And 
where we live now, he's, he's racing against older kids with better cars. And he's, so he's at, at least initially kind of got his teeth kicked in and I'm trying to convince him, I'm like, you're doing great. Um, like his, his lights, the first two weeks are better than anything that I had put together <laughs> that opening night. I just happened to win because we were all such a blank page and starting from scratch. But yeah, that's, uh, that's my first time down the racetrack. So 1993, I think April of 93 at, at uh, Texas Raceway in Kennerdale, Texas. You know, one thing that uh, I had this conversation with my wife the other day, and my oldest is wasn't all kinds of sports. I think I almost got him out of them. Now I don't sport. That's I. My wife had to teach him how to throw and catch and all that stuff. But it's it's funny. Like kids don't really know how to lose. You know how many sports? Like maybe wrestling. You know, it's always somebody missed the catch. Somebody didn't throw it right. You want to talk about that? Like when you're in that junior car and you're that light wind light doesn't come on. I mean, it just crushes you every time, and it kind of gives them that mental fortitude to keep going. And and I think that's why some people just, you know, it takes a lot of work to get better, and it takes a lot of practice, and like it takes a drive. And I just don't know if you get that with team sports, like you do. You know, when you're in a race car, it's if it doesn't come on, you did something. You know, man, I I had this conversation with a friend the other day, and and racing with gary my, my oldest son like I say it, it brings back some memories but it's so eye-opening just in terms of competition and responsibility and life skills you know what i mean the stuff that we kind of take for granted i think but what i was telling my, my buddy yesterday was part of our my son and i's routine on the on the starting line you know we we go through the whole deal and and get the idle set, you know, your typical junior director stuff. And I, the, the last thing we do, I roll them up probably, you know, within four or five inches of, of pre-stage and stop him. And, uh, and the last thing I do is I, I point to him like, hey, it's, it's on you. You know what I mean? And, 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 and walk off. And if you could see the look in my eight-year-old's eyes when I say, dude, it's on you, right? Like he just lights up. And it's what it made me realize is that I don't think of my wife and I as like helicopter parents necessarily, but like any parent, I think to some extent, like we shelter our kids, right? And I, it made me realize after seeing this look in my son's eyes that this might be the first time in his life that he's had that responsibility. Like whatever happens for you know the course of the next 30 seconds, win, lose, crash, whatever, like it's on you. It is completely, you have agency over all of it. And I don't know that he's ever been in that position. And, I, and to see the excitement of that is pretty incredible. It makes you think like, okay, how can I, how can I create this environment for, for my, my sons more often, right? And racing is obviously a, a catalyst for it. I feel like I had that look in my eyes when I moved out of the house at 18 years old because it's never really been on me. And all of a sudden you come outside and you're all excited and you get out there and the world hits you in the face. You're like, oh, crap, I want to go back <laughs> and let me in, you know? But. Yeah, no, and it's, uh, and you talked a little bit about like, um, the learning to lose. So it's a funny story. And I, I know I've, I've shared this, like with any elites, so you may have heard it at some point, Brian, but, um, so my, my son, like I said, his start in, in racing has been our local tracks. We don't get enough junior directors to separate by age groups. So he's racing against older kids that obviously have more experience and, and are, are able to go faster and then by virtue of that and by virtue of me not really having any idea what I'm doing as a, as a tuner, like they have better cars, right? So he doesn't have much of a chance coming in, especially the first handful of times that we went out. So we went to our local track probably four or five times and didn't went around, right? And he was fine with it, like having fun, realizing that he was learning, like, you know, advancing, like, this is all cool, no problem. 
And so we went to, to Bowling Green one Sunday. Our home track is an independent track. So we went to Bowling Green mainly just to get his license. And uh, he completed his licensing runs and they, they let him race that day. So he loses first round against an older kid, made a decent run. And uh, so we buy him back. Well, second round, he's running like an 11 year old in an 890 car. And Gary, my son, leaves the starting line. And I'm like, oh, that was, that was good, right? And I kind of lean over around the blocker and watch the other side of the tree. I'm like, we have like a 10th on the starting line. We might win. And uh, his win light comes on. I'm like, wow. And then he's 008 on the tree. So he gets the buy run the next round. And so it's, it's, our, it's the first win light, right? But it was amazing then how it like immediately dawned on him how much cooler it is to win than it is to lose, right? And all of a sudden, the burden of expectation went like through the roof, right? Because now he ends up, he, he turned it red the next round, which was the semifinal. And he was racing an older kid who I think was leading the points. They're a really good racer. But when that kid left the starting line, the carburetor literally fell off, like fell off the car quick. And so Gary's red. And he, I get to him at the other end and he's staring at his time slip and he's studying and he's like, daddy, how did I lose? I'm like, well, you, you red lighted. And he's pointing to the other side of the time slip. And he's like, but he didn't even like go, you know, he just got a 60 foot in the other lane. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't matter after you go red. And he's kind of putting it together. And he's like, so all I had to do was be green. Cause he didn't break out. And I'm like, yeah. And it's waterworks. You know what I mean? I'm like, what happened? <laughs> we went six weeks without winning a round. This is, this was a good day. And he's like, oh, like I could have been in the final. Yeah. <laughs> I told you that all the time. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry oh you... my God. But back to your point there about your first run down the track. Mine was in a stick shift super stalker um, time run. The Saturday morning time run at a divisional was my first trip down the track in that car. <laughs> time even run the index and I had to go into first round. <laughs> I'm like learning how to stage shift and cut a light. <clears throat> Yeah. Bobby, yeah. maybe your dad's theory was there's so much going on in this car, he has no way of getting nervous. <laughs> I was I to be honest, yeah, I wasn't. I was like, I don't need I stalled on the starting line first round. I shoved the throttle to the floor, started it back up. I was still somewhat rolling. I was already in pre-stage. As I did all that, I was staged and I had it, you know, shove it to the floor and launch. I was like 50 on the tree, believe it or not. But um I was still couple hundreds over the index so i i still uh i i lost but um it was the most fun i ever had in my life and then i was hooked ever you know after that as far as driving a stick car like wow you know so where did you go from juniors then what was your next step so we did that for a couple of years and i uh this sounds kind of bad to say now but i i got a little bit burnt out on it and i don't know part of it might have been the 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 parents aspect of it not my parents but just the kind of the little league aspect of of junior drags racing which is probably still prevalent to some extent to this day but wasn't fun but it was honestly i think at that age like i had a fair amount of success early on and keep in mind like i was basically racing with all the same kids like we grew up together at the racetrack you know we we played football together in the field we raced lego cars and then you know we all got into junior dragsters and for whatever reason, like I just kind of took to it more quickly than the majority of them. And, and I won probably more than my fair share. And it got to the point that it was like that was impeding on my friendships. You know what I mean? Like I, I was no longer like the, the fun kid to hang out with. Like I was the, the guy that was maybe winning a little bit too much. 
And at 12 and 13 years old, I don't think I processed that very well, you know, or figured out how to, to differentiate between the two. And I, so the easy fix to me was like, well, I just won't race. Right. And I was, it came at a, at, at a time when my father was wanting to build a, uh, a new race car for himself and we, we needed the money to do it. So we ended up selling, he had a Vega at the time. We sold his Vega. We sold my junior dragster and built this altered. And, uh, I actually went to <clears throat> working at the racetrack, um, pumping fuel, on race nights uh, at their little gas station there at Texas Raceway. And uh, I was mowing the, the pits in the summer times and things like that. I did that for about a year and a half and, and saved up some money and actually bought my first race car, which was not much. It was a, it was a 73 Nova, basically a, a hot street car that a uh, uh, <clears throat> poo brown, like ugly, just got awful, right? And uh, it, I think it went high eights in the eighth mile, but bought it from a local racer, made me a pretty good deal on it. And so I had this at 14 years old and my dad raced it a little bit while I was working at the track, had a couple of friends, Wendell Dunaway, Daryl Noe, some, some guys there that uh, were a big part of my upbringing, upbringing locally that, that uh, drove that car. And then I started somehow or another kind of got the idea and started pressuring my dad. I'm like, there is an outlaw track. I couldn't race at Canada, right? It was an NHRA sanction. They had rules, you know, like you had to, you had to legit be 16 and have a driver's license. And, uh, so somehow I got it in my head that one of the outlaw tracks on the road, like they might let me race. So I kept pressuring my dad, pressuring my dad. So finally he took me down there to just make some runs on like a test and tune day. <clears throat> and I was 14, 14 and a half maybe. And I've got pictures from that day. Like it's a, a wonder that they let me go down the track because I looked every bit of 11, right? But there was no issue. I went down the track and obviously acquitted myself to the point like no, nobody thought I was going to hit anything. I didn't draw, throw up any red flags. So we leave there and I'm like, dad, you got to take me back. Like, I think they'd let me race because they had a, you know, Saturday night bracket program. So that turned into going down there uh, once a month, probably for the rest of that year. And, and say it's similar to you, like the first race that we went to, I'm in, you know, high on the horse, like, ah, oh, this stuff's easy. You know, like I'm going to, I'm going to show everybody how to do it. And I'm running, I had a old like three digit Nazir delay box that I got at a swap meet. So I'm, I'm running in, you know, the top bulb class and, and the foot brake class. And I get smacked around pretty early in both and we're loading up the first night and they announced that they're going to do like a consolation race and whatever, there might've been 12 people sign up. Well, I ended up signing up for that and I win. So I won the first night in my junior and kind of won the first night in a big car. So that was cool. And then, and then pressured dad, we ended up going down there about once a month. And then um, when I turned, like the day I turned 15, uh, in Texas, at least, I think this is still a thing. You could apply for a, a hardship driver's license, basically like my both parents worked. I need to drive myself to school type of thing. And it had provisions. You had to drive like during daylight hours, or whatever, but I had a legal driver's license at 15 and that allowed me. The reason I got it the day of my birthday was not to drive to school. It was to race. So <laughs> <laughs> that allowed me to start racing at my home track. We didn't have that in Pennsylvania. That would have been wonderful. I don't think my parents would have went for it, though, even if, even if they were both working. <laughs> There's so many things from my youth that I look back and I'm like, thank God my parents had a sense of humor. Like, <laughs> I got caught taking the car out of the garage one time when they came home. They knew something wasn't right. You know, the car, when it's hot, it's like, like cooling off. And they came home. He could always tell something. I put that car in the exact same spot I found it in. Nope. Caught. yeah exactly no i uh this is like i can't i just hope that my my kids get more of my 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 
wife's like genetics mindset, whatever, when I look back. So I, I'll take up a little bit of time here, but this is one of my favorite stories. And I don't know how on earth I ever got away with it, but that later that year, you know, like I said, my dad's taken me to it was Cedar Creek Dragway. It was this little outlaw track that, that we'd go to once a month. And it's like the last weekend of the year. And we're going to go down there. And my dad calls home at you know noon on Saturday. He's at work. And he's like, hey, I got tied up at work. Like, I'm going to have to be here. I, I can't go to Cedar Creek. So I'm devastated, right? Well, on the weekends that we were home, uh, when, when he had to work late, we only lived like three miles from my home track at Texas Raceway. So my mother would take me out to the track. And one of my buddies would you know, drop off their car in the pits, drive over to home, load up my car and, and unload it so that they could race it. So when he tells me we can't go to Cedar Creek, I'm like, all right, so just um, just take me out to uh, to Canada. I tell my mom, like, just drop me off at the track, you know? And uh, so she does, and I get my buddy, Daryl, and I'm like, hey, we got to go back get the Nova. It's like, all right, cool. We get back, and I was like, I'm going to drive it today. He's like, how are you going to pull that off? I'm like, I don't know, but I, 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 I was going to race today, but I got, I'm going to race today. And he's like, well, you grew up here. Like everybody knows you and everybody knows that you're nowhere near old enough to drive. Like you don't have a driver. Like it's not going to work. Like I had to work. It'll be fine. Right. So I pull into the staging lane for the, like the last time trial session. I'm like six cars back. I got my helmet on. Nobody's going to know it's me. Right. Well, somehow or another, I get through the time trial and like first round in both classes and, and, and win, you know, in, in pro and, and no electronics. And then I hear an announcement. I get called to the tower. I'm like, oh man, that's, that's not good. Right. So I walk up there and Larry Croft, bless his heart. He was a track manager for years and years and years. And he's like, as soon as I walk up the steps of the tower, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, what, 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 what do you mean? Are, are you driving that car? Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, sir. I am. And he just like, I can't believe you put me in this position. I'm like, what do you mean? Maybe it was even after like two rounds because I remember Larry telling me, he's like, what do you mean? What do I mean? You aren't old enough to drive this car. You don't have a driver's license and you've done beat four of my customers. What do I do with them? Like if I'm supposed to kick you out, what do I do with them? I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. I don't, I don't know, Larry. And he just kind of takes a deep breath and he's kind of fuming and he's like, listen, you get back down there. You finish this race. Don't you hit anything. Don't do anything stupid. And don't ever come back here till you got a driver's license. And he let me finish the race. I lost in like the semifinals of one class. So anyway, it gets better. So like maybe that round, the starter, it sounded awful in Old Nova. So I go to start at one round and it kicks the, the Bendix off and like hits the fence beside me in staging lanes. And I, my, my buddy Daryl is, is standing there and I look up at him and I go, what was that? He goes, that was a start. He says, whatever you do, don't shut it off. Okay. Like ever until you lose, we're not shutting it off. And keep in mind, it was basically a streetcar. It wasn't that big a deal, but we went like three hours then pouring water in one end, fuel in the other, never shut the thing off, get to like the semifinals. So anyway, then I get home that night and I'm like, my dad asked, like, how'd Daryl do? I'm like, oh, Daryl did great. You know, he lost in the semis in one class and quarterfinals in the other. He, he, it was an awesome night. Cool. I said, but uh, hey, when we go to get the car tomorrow, we had we had two open trailers at the time, like one single axle deal that I normally use. And then one, you know, like the nice open trailer that actually had a winch and stuff on it. I'm like, hey, we're going to have to take the big trailer because the starter's broke. Like, we're going to have to winch it up on the trailer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep, no problem. 
So we go to the track the next morning and, you know, nobody's there. So they wanted, well, the owner of the track who was not like super involved, right? Older guy, he'd been a world champion in, in Superstock uh, years prior. It was just, you know, basically the, the man behind the track didn't, didn't have much to do with it and was kind of out in, in left field for the most part, right? But he and my dad were really close. He comes walking down the hill from where he lived. And I'm like, ah, I'm not even worried about Hutch, right? Like he's, and uh, comes up to my dad and he's like, Bo, your boy did good last night. He's like, yeah, he, see, he said Daryl did a good job, right? And I don't know how I how I've justified in my mind that my father's not going to find out about this, but I had, right? And he's like, Daryl, hell, you, your boy got in that car done good. And I could tell the look on my face as my father put it together, like he wanted to be mad at me, but there was a part of him that was proud of me. You know what I mean? So I was watching him kind of work through that in real time. But yeah, I, I say, I, I, I gave that man a lot of gray hairs <laughs> prematurely. <laughs> oh, man. That's a great story right there. <laughs> it was fun. You know, they say the scary thing is our kids... Uh double everything we have right like however you are your kids will be that times two that's what i keep thinking like this is all going to come back around yeah see i was uh my parents said i wasn't responsible enough so i didn't get to get my driver's license till i was 16 but i could tell you i had a lot of miles on before then i would just always make sure i parked the odometer so the last two numbers were always the same and i was always put the exact amount of gas in and <laughs> i shouldn't tell this story on where it's recorded but i will because i'm in this room <laughs> There was a girl who I thought was pretty cute that was at the lake, which was 15 miles from my house. And my buddy was already there, and he's like, oh, man, you got to come. So the plan was to go there. Well, I took the car, which was a convertible, you know, the old, like, Chrysler 300, ugly convertibles like my parents thought was the coolest thing ever. So we go down there, and I'm hanging out, and my buddy backs into the side of it and, like, hits the fender, like, dents the fender. I'm like, oh, crap. So I do the normal drive around until the odometer is about right. And as I'm pulling in, there's like a little podunk farm with like the wooden garage with the slider doors. And right before I come in the door, I just go wham. I smoked the pet. I ran into the side of the garage. So I got the red paint off the fender and uh, parked it in the garage. And my parents come home and they're like, I said, I did something bad. And they're like, what's that? I said, well, I backed the car out so i could sweep the garage and i was pulling in and a cat ran in front of me and i hit the garage until now they won't listen to this anyways but nobody has ever knew that that's how the car got broken <laughs> so now i come home one day and i pull in the garage i told my wife i'm like something's hot she goes i smell nothing i said i guarantee you the kid was doing something in here and he can't ride his dirt bike if we're not home Sure enough, I backed my pickup out, and you could see he was in doing donuts in the garage, and I could literally just smell the heat. I'm like, my kids are not going to get away with anything because I was the master of trying to avoid responsibility when it comes to that. But I think you're in trouble, Luke. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm coming to the same re realization. <laughs> you guys, not me. I was I was perfect. So uh, let's get, let's get into some racing uh, strategy here, Luke. We all know that you are the founder of thisisbracketracing.com and uh, former world champion a couple times. You've won a bazillion dollars racing. Um, you're probably the only racer that has like a net profit, which is pretty cool. Um, let's, well, I would say you've been doing this. I, I was at ACO one day and you were giving uh, actual on-track lessons. Uh, it was probably like 10 years ago. So you've been doing this for a long time, training, training people. How did it really... Uh, turn into this website and how did you like grow it 
How, how did it start? Yeah, no, that's a funny story too, Bobby. Because um, so I'm we're talking go back to maybe 2004, 2005, so 15 plus years ago. I had a, a buddy that uh, I had raced with a lot growing up. His name's Blake Allen. He's from the Tulsa, Oklahoma area, and he's telling me he's like, "Hey, man, have you ever thought about like putting on a, a school?" I'm like, "Dude, I'm I, at that point, I'm 25 years old, like." had some success, but who's going, who, who wants to hear me tell them how to drive the race car, you know, especially somebody that's older, that's probably been down the track more than I have. Like, yeah, I just kind of put it off, put it off, put it off. And he kept on, you know, Hey, you need to do this. Like, I think this could work. This could work. And uh, finally, after about four of these conversations, Blake calls me one day and he's like, listen, I've got the class put together. I got 12 people that have paid. All you got to do is come teach. I'm like, Oh, uh, okay so it was at mocan dragway probably 2004 2005 and i was really nervous about it just for all the reasons that i just mentioned i'm like and you're just you're i'm going to run into people that aren't going to be receptive to what i've got to say like everybody's got their own way of doing things who am i to tell them that my way is better or you know how to do it and that that two days literally made a 180 in my outlook because the racers involved, a lot of them are, are elite members today. I keep in touch with several of them. Like racers involved are so receptive and it makes sense. Like if you're going to invest your time and your money into something like that, you're going to be receptive, right? Like you, you genuinely want to, to hear an opinion and, and, and want to grow. And that was such a special two days of watching these guys and gals implement some of the things that we talked about genuinely really truly improve on the racetrack and you could see it visually and then to to see how it kind of opened doors for them it really it made me look at the thing completely differently so that became a handful more live schools and then became the challenge of okay like how do we scale this and that was the original this is bracketracing.com and then years later um into the elite community which is has grown into something that I never would have imagined. Like we've tapped into a market that I didn't honestly know existed, but the the cool thing about it is that we're still, uh, and for so many years now have made, kind of want to overstate it. You know, we're, we're, we're not solving the problems of the world, but we're building confidence and skill set among racers in something that we all enjoy and to some extent, you know, take identity from like, and I do think that there's something to be said, if you take it a little bit broader existentially and the rising tide floats, there rises, raises all boats, whatever that, that saying is right. Like you get a little bit better at something that you care about, like racing. And I think that almost inevitably that confidence flows into other areas of life, like and and can be applied in so many different ways and that's the that's the really cool part about it so well the one thing i noticed so this is basically my third season of being around it you know there's so many basics like when you look at just the fundamentals of you know the lights and staging and once you get through that most people coming into this have been doing it and understand all that i mean to me there's a huge mental aspect like you know, I, I think it's funny when some people are like, well, I just holders like, and I never understood hold, why would somebody would want to hold or I don't, you know, I just all the fundamental basics, but you know, there's such a mental game that goes into it too. I mean, it's, it's interesting. What do you think, or what would you say is the key fundamental piece if you want to win more? I mean, where do you think somebody should start if they're kind of struggling? 
Yeah, I, I think to your point, I mean, there's there's stages to this because I want to say, just like you said, the differentiator is, is confidence. And I think at a, at a certain point, it 100% is. Now, if you've if you if you're Bobby, like the first time that you that you sit in the stick shift car and your first run is the the time trial of the divisional and you have really no idea completely what you're getting into, like you could have all the confidence in the world. It's probably not going to help much. Right? You have zero experience, and, and and there's going to have to be uh, there's a learning curve there, right? So that 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 confidence in that instance is probably unfounded. But when we get to a point um, where we've got a basic understanding of the game. And we've developed, you know, the general skill set of what it takes to win, uh, or what it takes to even compete. I think the difference, one hundred percent, between the also rans and the racers that you see winning consistently is completely between the ears. Because, and at the level that that you guys are racing and that I'm used to seeing, whether it's the big dollar bracket racing or or the Lucas Oil Series within the NHRA ranks, I don't see a lot of racers that don't have the knowledge that don't have the skill set. I see a lot of racers that lack the confidence. I, I think 100% that's the differentiating factor. You know, it's kind of funny that I remember the first couple times down the car, I mean, I felt like I was in a rocket ship and trying to do the burnout and how to stage and all right, how many yellows before it goes green? I mean, there's all the basics, but it seems like once you get the routine, like to me getting, like if you're just starting and you're struggling, like get a routine and just kind of do it the same every time. There's so much because um, that you you think about confidence and you're like okay like in theory I get it right like we should be more confident but how do you get there short of having success right because we can all agree like winning breeds winning but if if confidence was solely dependent on success then no one would ever win for the first time right there, there's a way there are ways to build up that comfort level that confidence. Um, you know, without necessarily having direct success. And to your point, Brian, like, I think the the simplest or most common way to do that is to really um, drill into regimenting a relatively rigid, rigid routine in the race car. And I mean, we think about routine from the water box to the, the stage beams, and that's probably the most important part. I think it even goes back to like, you know, getting in the car and suiting up and strapping in, you know, just because there is something to going through the same repetition in the same order time after time after time and allowing it to um, spark or, or um, create some of the, the same thoughts and the same mental procedure that ultimately it becomes like, Hey, whatever the situation is, whatever the stakes are, whether it's, you know, a, a Wednesday night test in tune or whether it's the third round at the U.S. Nationals, like there is some comfort to, to realizing maybe subconsciously that, hey, what I'm doing is the same thing that I've done a hundred times, a thousand times, whatever the case may be. And, and I think the more that we regiment that process, the easier it is to find comfort in it. It's almost like you generate muscle memory by doing the routine and then then it's just a matter of stress inoculation. Like it always works when it does, but that, you know, just the more, to me, it seems like the better you get the muscle memory and the more it's just instinctual or, you know, you're just, you're just flowing. If something happens and all of a sudden, then you just have to learn through the stress inoculation of it is all right. Just, you know, step one, step two, step three, nothing else matters. Yeah. hundred percent. Like the, the, 
the best golfers in the world say, and I try a lot of parallels between golf and what we do, just individual sport and so mind heavy. And it's ultimately a lot of repetition. Like the best golfer in the world can tell you all of the technical aspects of how to hit a, a draw or how to hit a fade, but they're not thinking about that as they swing, right? They've, they've burned that into their subconscious through practice. And ultimately when they address the ball, like I, I think that the most successful golfers would say like, I'm in the zone or however you want to say it, but ultimately you're not really thinking about what you're doing. You're letting that muscle memory take over. And that is essentially the same thing that we're trying to establish on the racetrack with routine is like, yeah, we want to learn and gain all of the knowledge that we possibly can to implement on the racetrack, but to do so in a way that we can actually implement it kind of means at some point, you just have to trust your instincts that, that, have, that you've trained, right? Um, and, and basically turn the brain off, the conscious brain off to where you're not necessarily thinking through it step-by-step step in the moment. What do you find? Luke, the- when students come to you or, or when you get that first email, we'll say, or text message or whatever it may be, what's the most commonly asked question that they, that they present to you? Like, Luke, you know, I need some help. Can you help me with blah, blah, blah? Like what's the most common one? Um, I would say that the most common and also to be completely frank, probably the most difficult to teach uh, and the most difficult to learn is struggles at the finish line. And uh, I think most of us would agree it's, it's somewhat easier as the faster car. So if you had to really drill it down, it's doing a a good job consistently at the finish line on purpose specifically as the slower car and there are a lot of tools that that we can share to help breed that and i feel like any any successful endeavor really and specific to racing it, it ultimately comes down to two facets you've got understanding and execution and individually neither one of them is worth much right like if you do a what in your mind is a great job but you don't really understand what you're doing or why then it's probably not going to work out if you know exactly what to do but can't seem to do it then that's not going to be beneficial either so it's a matter of merging the two together and specific to the finish line the actual execution element of it like i'm not going to claim to be able to help a whole lot like ultimately that's going to come from repetition from experience from seat time But I do think that if you really have a full understanding of what's supposed to happen, why it's supposed to happen, and when it's supposed to happen, that you can speed up that learning process pretty uh, tremendously. Are you a mirror guy or look over the shoulder? I am a look over the shoulder. I actually, I've had, uh, I've had spirited conversations with with Bud McNasby on this because he's a mirror guy and like a really good mirror guy. I think I won't claim that there is a a better or worse way to do it. I just, I learned driving slower cars and and I learned, you know, I was really fortunate to grow up where I did, when I did just being surrounded by Scotty and Edwin Richardson, Tommy Phillips, the Heffler brothers, you know, I mean, there were so many great racers that basically called my home track home. And I remember at a young age, like watching Scotty, I don't know if he had seatbelts on, you know, I mean, just spun around looking out the back glass of his car. So that was what I tried to emulate when I started racing myself. And I've always been more comfortable if I can get spun around and actually put eyeballs on my opponent's car and pick up that rate of closure. So, yeah, I don't, I think mirrors are a great thing if you like implemented it from day one, 
I just didn't. So I'm far more comfortable actually spinning around and, and, and locating eye contact. The other thing too, I want to tell our listeners that are on live right now is if you do have a question for Luke, go free and put it on the comments. Let's try to stay out of like tune up specifics just because we're talking more broad general maybe strategy or mental side of things but feel free to go ahead and post those and we'll try to get you an answer too um so luke what do you think like what is your best advice i guess for how do you what's your game day or pre-game ritual look like like how do you go into the race like i think i was talking to somebody about this the other day you know you look at a lot of people look at the weekend as you know we're going to go camp and hang out with the guys and you know there's you can just tell there's some people that are really on point they got their stuff together what separates them from the ones that seem like they're kind of lost like what is your regiment look like how do you get in the mindset of winning yeah i mean you could go a lot of different directions with that i think the first thing that um most racers would point to but we can all be guilty of of uh of not being great at it from time to time is, is preparation before the fact, um, I guess mentally and physically as well, but specific to just having things kind of high and tight race car wise, equipment wise, trailer, uh, rig wise. Like I've noticed that the older I get, Brian, like the more routine dependent I become, you know I mean? I, I guess I feel like it's, it's natural as we get older, like there's just more going on in life. So being able to, uh, to, to, to kind of put that in place and, 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 and manage it all or, or, or be, um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for, productive throughout the day. Like for me, it, it has to be pretty regimented. So uh, what I've noticed, and this is probably not a good trait, but the older I get, like the, the, the less um, adept I am at, at, um, at, at adapting on the fly. Like when things don't go correctly i tend to get a little bit spun out and it's at times can be difficult to get back so the preparation process of eliminating as many of those silly problems as i can before we get to the racetrack is key to me um from a physical standpoint like i i try to take pretty good care of myself and this wasn't this wasn't a thing for me 10 years ago i think it becomes more important with all of us when we're older like um getting enough sleep Get, staying hydrated, eating relatively well at the racetrack. I think that all plays into it specifically at your, your marathon type events, you know, whether it's multi-day races or some of the big dollar bracket races are really rough because I mean, you could race till all hours of the night and come back and do it again the next day. And, and I feel like in order to perform anywhere near my capability in that, like there is a, a multi-day ramp up of kind of building up the sleep bank, you know what I mean? To, in order to, to, to be able to execute in that situation mentally, like I just try to keep a really positive outlook. I try to, to be self-aware when I'm slipping out of that and, and take a step back and think about why and, and why I'm, why I'm here. And for me at this point, my racing career, and it hasn't always been like this for me. Like I've, I've been very tunnel vision for, for much of my career, but now I'm, I'm at a really nice stage in, in life and racing where it's more about family, like pretty basically with very few exceptions, everywhere we go, my wife races when there's juniors, my, my, my son races, the whole family is together with, with very few exceptions everywhere that I go. And that has made racing a lot more fun. And it helps to put things into perspective when, when things don't go well, or you don't have success. And I don't feel like my, um, 
my mood or my identity is near as tied to my results as it used to be. And there's a freedom in that that I think really helps. Um, and then, I mean, to, to take your question in a bunch of different facets, like I'm really, I derive a lot of confidence from, and, and we can break confidence down in, in so many different ways. The best way that, that I could explain it in my own racing and, and as a, an instructor, so to speak, is I feel like we should work to take confidence from two different things. Like one being kind of something that we can hang our hat on that's there day after day, race after race, week after week. And for me, I would say that that's typically, I try to make that preparation, right? I allow that, that level of preparation to, to, to build confidence. And then also I feel like in each individual round of competition, I like to find something and it may be completely in my own mind, but some reason that I feel like I should be successful in this round. Like maybe there's a big weather swing and I feel like I have a better handle on it than the average opponent or uh, the track seems iffy, but I think my car will go down it better than the average opponent, or I've been great on the tree. I'm going to continue that. I'm the faster car that gives me an edge at the finish line, whatever. Like I, there's something in each round where I can convince myself that it is a slight advantage. And I will harp on that thing mentally and be like, that's, that's why I'm going to win this round, whether that actually proves to be true or not. So finding a way to really intentionally and, and purposefully build up some of that confidence in those two areas for each round of competition is, is key for me. So I like that strategy there, kind of convincing yourself that, you know what, I, I, have an advantage over my opponent that right. so this, this is, is something that. that i do well or can do well in this particular mm -hmm. situation or whatever yeah. so back to your regiment bobby and i always have this because we're polar opposites what is the required amount of times to check your air pressure before staging to still win the race because i go with i check them once and we're good but bobby checks them 100 times so maybe your your benefit bobby could be i check my air pressure more than anyone else at the track combined i can beat them <laughs> i have i i will not claim to not have my uh my subtle quirks and and things that i do but that uh, air pressure is not one of them that's uh i uh i'm a, probably a one-time around type of guy unless we're in the staging lanes for a long period of time but i've got <laughs> other things that i do like part of my actual on-track routine and it's so funny i don't know if you guys have ever messed with like putting a gopro in the car or, or watching you know live feed there's, there's so there's things i feel like what I do specifically on the starting line is super intentional, right? Like I kind of have a, a that rigid routine and it's almost like a mental checklist every round. But one of the last things that I do pretty much regardless of the car that I stage, I, I, I kind of, I go through like a verbal cadence before I pre-stage. And the last one, I tell myself to, to have fun and I kind of like pull myself up, right? Like just, just kind of resituate. So in my, in a Corvette, in my Corvette or in a dragster, I'm kind of grabbing the, the roll cage bars and, uh, in my Vega, it's the it's the down bar in the cage, you know, just kind of grab something and, and resituate. And when and, and in my mind, like I go through that process and I do that. And then when I see myself on camera in a GoPro, like I do do that. And then I'll inch forward like six inches toward pre-stage and I'll do it again. And I'll kind of and then I'll inch forward another two inches. And I do it like four times before I pre-stage. You know, I mean, there's there's subtle quirks that we all have that are maybe it's some of it's nerves, some of it's uh, you know, being a little bit, uh, compulsive, obsessive, like whatever, but I think we've all got them. Look, I did hear you in a podcast one time, uh, 
say you you tilt your head down and look up and and it was totally like you were like try to you don't have to blink if you do that and i was like yeah right that's not possible and i sat there and i was like wow he's right so that was pretty cool like yeah i can't even take credit for that bobby i did a one of those live schools that we talked about earlier years ago i did a, a couple of them actually with the trollings junior a really successful maybe the best like big dollar bracket racer of all time you know you could make that argument but we did a couple of schools together and he shared that and he's like you know look like the human blink is six hundredths of a second or whatever you know you'd see various studies on that but the point is like you don't want to blink while the tree's coming down that's that's not conducive to success right and so he had us do this exercise in the middle of class he's like just you know tilt your head down to say look at your desk in front of you and without moving your head, um, you know, raise your eyes up. So you're kind of looking through your eyelids to look at me and then try to blink. And it's almost painful. Like it's hard to do. So I incorporated that in the starting on the starting line, mainly not to blink. And maybe there's nothing to it specifically. I mean, maybe it's just the result of having made that part of my routine for so long. But I feel like for me that that, helps also catalyze like a level of concentration like it's go time in my mind you know when i'm kind of looking up through my eyelids and and i feel like it uh, it kind of helps me get to that that next level you know that we all want to get to of acute concentration once both cars are staged i suppose it's just that you're doing it with purpose like your mind yeah. mentally when you do that it's like activating the switch all right i'm going to purposefully do this every time it just becomes muscle memory yeah, no, that's a good way to put it. I think you're right. I think the the intention element of it is definitely a part of it. Yeah. Another... So we, we did have one question yeah. from Tim Barrett. Um, I've heard the term spot and drop. What is this and how do racers do it? Okay, so this is, uh, this is some of the verbiage that we use within This Is Bracket Racing. We basically break down your core finish line strategies into to one of three. The first being the dialer that I think anyone has has uh, raced in a, in a handicap instance is, is comfortable with. And that's basically like, I'm going to win because I'm going to have a good light and I'm going to match my dial in. Like I'm going to dial my car what I think it'll run. And unless I'm way ahead, I'm going to hold it on the floor and, and hope that it matches that dial in. And then you've got the polar opposite of that, which is the driver that is that's the, the term that we use as the driver. And that's basically saying like, look, I'm going to win this race because... I'm going to have a good light and I'm going to cross the finish line ahead of my opponent by a, a small amount, right? Normally that means I'm going to dial something slower than what I think I could run, you know, sandbag, however you want to, uh, to, to connotate that. The spot drop strategy is a little bit of a mixture of the two, meaning that typically to be successful as a spot dropper, we need to have a consistent car, right? We need to have a car that we could win with as a dialer. But let's say that that car, uh, we think that we're capable of running 1050 rather than dialing 1050 and, and holding it on the floor, we're going to dial up a predetermined amount of ET. You know, say it's 200s, 300s, 400s, whatever the case may be, with the sole intention, not necessarily of outdriving our opponent at the finish line, but to the sole intention of lifting off the throttle and or tapping the brakes at a predetermined point on the racetrack in an effort to kill those two, three, four hundredths of a second, whatever the case may be. And so... The idea being that we're still going to match the dial-in, but we're going to do it as a, as a moving target. And you say, okay, well, what's the advantage to that? The advantage to that is basically to disguise a poor reaction time. Okay, let's say in that same example, 
let's say that we're racing an opponent dialed 10 flat and whether that opponent realizes it or not, they're capable of running 999, right? They can go under the dialing. Well, let's say that that opponent is 10 on the tree and we're 40. And if we're dialed 1050, what we think we can run, our car can make a perfect run and we're going to be like 40,000s package, right? We're 40 on the tree and dead on zero. Well, that opponent that is 10 and going 100 thunder, he had a 300s advantage on the starting line, plus he's outrunning us 100 in reference to our dial-in. So as we approach the finish line, he or she should be 400s ahead. And given that spot, that half-second spot, the average race in the other lane is going to realize like, hey, I'm going to get there first. I have enough room to step off the throttle, touch brakes. And odds are they're going to kill that hundredth of a second that they were breaking out to not break out and, and ultimately win. If you take that same scenario, but rather than being dialed 1050, let's say that we're dialed 1053. Well, now the math all changes. We're still 40. They're still 10. So they have 300ths of a second advantage on the starting line. But now as we approach the finish line, they're going 100th of a second under. We're going 300ths of a second under. So what that suddenly does now is it takes that 300ths advantage that they had on the starting line and makes it just 100th of a second. So now as we approach the finish line, the race is close. And the majority of opponents in the other lane are going to say, oh, I think I'm going to get by, but it's too close to do anything about it. Well, about the time that they make that decision, in theory, we hit our spot, lift off the throttle or, or tap the brakes, kill the 300s. We end up making the exact same run that we would have made, right? We're 40 and dead on. But we did it in a way that is much more likely to induce a mistake in the other lane. And it's in this situation, I think the odds of that opponent running a hundredth or a thousandth of a second under the dial-in go way up and increase our chances of win. That's, that's the spot drop theory in, in, in its simplest form, but, and that's really the reason that it can be so um, successful. Well, like anything, it just takes practice and knowing your spot and knowing your car. and It creating. does, but it, that particular strategy is, is simpler, I think, to, to implement than about anything else we can do, because really it's something that we can implement and practice on a time trial, on a test day, like it's, it, it really doesn't have anything to do with the track position of the car in the other lane. It's simply figuring out how far from the finish line we can respond with some type of foot action. And what I typically tell people that are, that are new to it is like that are, are skittish about, you know, hitting the brakes or knowing exactly where they are on the racetrack, like take the same foot action that you currently use at the finish line, like you cross the finish line and eventually you have to slow down to make the turnoff, right? So whatever it is you do at the finish line now, it doesn't have to be any more dramatic than that. Let's just do that 60 feet earlier, 80 feet earlier, 100 feet earlier. And obviously the, the most common, easiest reference for that is what I would call the mile per hour cone. You know, it's the, the first cone of the traps that's what, 66 feet from the finish line. Like that's a good reference point. I'm not saying like just drive to the first cone and hit the brakes, but usually our spot's going to be based off of that somehow. You know, it's either going to be at that spot or a car length past it or a car length before it or whatever the case may be. Um, but yeah, actually developing that and then implementing it is not as difficult as it seems because it's not it's not dependent on picking up track position and closing rates and, and identifying what your opponent's about to do. It's really just making a run in your in your lane and focusing on what you can do. Um, you know, kind of regardless of what's happening beside you. That's good. It, and it will disguise bad reaction times, which is great about it, but it will not disguise an inconsistent 
car, I don't Correct. think. So you have to have a consistent car. You have to know what that car is going to run. And some people think, oh, if I just spot drop, I'll, it'll help my inconsistent car maybe win more rounds. And Yeah, no, not necessarily. Because yeah. like same deal, basically, with, with some exception, you're kind of locked into in that instance, like I'm holding three. Well, if your car picks up three, now you're holding six. And you don't know that. You know what I mean? So <laughs> it's, it's not. Yeah, I, I really think like success in the spot drop element is when we try to think about game planning, like where to, to, to employ, where to pull certain clubs out of the bag, like the spot drops really successful when you know what your car can run and maybe aren't quite as confident on the starting line, right? Cause it can disguise that, that, that bad reaction time. But if the car is inconsistent, like it's a much harder strategy to execute, but usually that's when we want to, to lean more on the driver strategy, which is like, I'm just going to cross the finish line first by a smaller margin as possible. Right. But so once you, you think, yeah, when, does that happen? Like you start with one strategy, but wait, I have a football field here. Am I holding more than I thought I was? What is going on? Now I have to, now I'm no longer spot dropping. Now I have to turn into what you just called the, the driver as the holder, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's uh, like to take, if we had a, a, a fourth um, kind of base strategy, what we call it is, is meshing those three together. We call mm-hmm. that the monster. That, that's basically <laughs> staging with the, the, Knowing, staging with an idea of what's going to happen, but being able to iterate based on on track position and 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 to identify that and then execute accordingly, and ultimately, to me, that comes down to we try to break things down, you know, from a teaching element into to, to something more palatable, you know, and, and less abstract. So, if I were to break down like successfully driving the finish line into to three phases. For me, it's number one, game planning, which is not as complex as it sounds. Like basically the game plan for me is saying, okay, I think I can run X on dial Y or maybe X, right? Like maybe it's the same thing, but maybe you're dialed up from it or down from it. And then based upon that, what am I going to do in three specific situations as the race unfolds? Situation number one, um, I realize that I'm going to be ahead when we hit the finish line, like how do, how do I want to respond to that based on my strategy? This is all pre-race situation. Number two, like I can't catch them or they're going to go by me. Like I can't get to the finish line first if we both hold it wide open. And then the, the, the third, you know, potential situation is like, it's going to be really close, right? Which happens more often than, than we probably want to admit, right? There's times where you just can't really tell, but what to predetermine, what am I going to do in each of those three scenarios based upon my strategy? That's the game planning aspect. Then you've got the decision-making element, which is obviously actually downtrack, determining the rate of closure and, and making one of those three calls. Like if we both hold up on the floor, I'm going to cross first, I'm going to cross second, or it's going to be really close. And then the third is execution, which if you do the first two well, it's not a matter of really iterating on the fly. It's simply taking the strategy that you had coming in, one of those three options, and then appropriately choosing it based upon how the race is developing right so in my mind like i always say if i feel like we 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 do better on the test when we know the answers coming in right so i think the game planning stage is really critical in that regard to just again simplify things and say okay this is what i'm going to do if so that on the racetrack we're not necessarily thinking through every scenario every possible scenario it's more or less of like oh okay well, i i i said if i was going to get in there first i was going to do it like this, and then you, you just try to execute that in the moment. So a lot of well, that's, we have a, a lot of that's ahead, just having. We have a question from Jake Howard when you get a chance. A lot of that's <laughs> basically just having 
having your plan is you before you even pull up into stage, have a plan. Know who you're going to raise, and then kind of having the plan, and then basically implementing it. Right? Like you can't implement what you haven't planned for. Yeah, having a plan, but with like specific options. Because I feel like it's one thing to say like, "Oh, I got a plan," but anytime in in my racing that let's say say for instance that you know it's that really fast morning round and you're seeing double breakout after double breakout after double breakout. Well, going into a round saying like, I probably don't want to cross the finish line first. That's not a good plan because it seems like every time that I lock into that, it's, I run the one guy that's four above, you know what I mean? Like, and I look like a moron. So it's, it's having a, like, to me, the right game plan is a specific set of options based upon what unfolds. Well, it's like, Iron Mike said, you know, everybody has a plan until you've been punched in the face. And that's <laughs> fair, <laughs> you know, which kind of brings us back. There's So there's another question. I think this is pretty important and kind of plays into that. But Jake Howard said, so say you're pre-staged and staged. Your opponent is pre-staged and taking forever. What do you do not to lose? Lose your concentration. Yeah, so that's a good one because um, the thing like 99% of the races that we, uh, we attend today is run on, on auto start, right? So that that uh, protects against like the stupid long, you know, somebody hanging out for 30 seconds or something like that. And say like at an NHRA event, that auto start setting is typically seven seconds, which doesn't sound like long, right? And in reality, it's not. And it's easy to say until you're sitting there and your opponent hasn't staged for six and a half seconds. It seems like an eternity, right? Um, so how I try to combat this and, and my take on staging in general is again, like I'm, I'm, I try to personally be very regimented and to the point of, I think if you took a stopwatch from say like the, uh, the time that both cars pre-staged to the time that I staged, I think it's very, very similar every round. Like both cars pre-staged, I look over, reference a spot, I start you know, the process of bumping in. And I, I feel like I'm very precise in that process. So. I would say more often than not, I think I stage last, like I'm just slower about it, but at the same time, like it doesn't bother me at all. So if, if my opponent's not staged, like I, I'm still going to stage in that amount of time. And if they are going to take a long time and, or, you know, kind of hang me out, whether that's intentional or not, like some people just have a long routine uh, and some people have a really quick routine. So, and that can be, you know, that can rush us in the same way. I think the, the main thing to remember is that a, we own our time on the starting line, so there's no rush to stage first. But in that specific situation that Jake laid out, um, what I try to do, like I'll hearken this back, and I know this isn't uh, necessarily applicable to probably half of your audience that are are, are true foot braking or in a in a stock eliminator car, but definitely applies to the super stock guys. Is one thing that helps me is when I stage first in a in a trans brake application is that I will hold the car staged with the foot brake until my opponent is staged before I'll actually go down on the button. That way it allows me to kind of take full advantage of auto start. Like from the time that I press in the button to the time that the tree starts down is going to be pretty much the same round around. So it eliminates some of that physical tension and it just kind of helps me to like, that's the cue for concentration, right? Like I don't, I'm looking at the tree obviously, but until my opponent stages, like I'm not just locked in. Um, and I think you do the same thing in a foot brake application. Like it's a little bit harder if you, if you stalled it up to bump in, you know, which is like the way that I bracket race, because that inherently is going to build up some physical tension. Um, but just from a mental focus standpoint, like I won't focus on say the bottom bulb 
until both cars have staged. You know, like I'm just kind of looking at the tree, like not not even necessarily focused on their stage bulb. Like I'm going to see that when it comes on, and that's when I can lock in. That's probably the best way that I can I can describe to help break that up and make uh, you know the the process that we want to embark on on the staging lane as consistent from round to round, regardless of the the order of the staging process. So a question I have that uh, I think I know the answer to based off of what Justin's told me, but what are your thoughts on blocking? Yeah, um, not a fan. <laughs> I, I know that it has its place because it can eliminate so many variables, right? And, and obviously, I... I don't get to race bottom bulb stuff as much as I used to. I've actually made that a focus this winter of getting, because there was a time where I was really confident off the bottom and I just don't do it enough now to, to be there. But even when I, when I practice and really feel good on the bottom, like I, I think most racers would agree, like my, my window of variance is better on a pro tree or, or with a delay box than it is off the bottom, just because you're just reacting to one thing, right? There's less that can go wrong. So I see the argument in that regard. The problem, at least in my experience with blocking, is A, you guys may have some information to rebut this, but I have honestly like yet to see anyone that repeatedly, consistently could do it at night. And, and, I, and I've seen it tried a lot of different ways, you know? And so then the issue then becomes like, okay, I'm going to block all the time. I'm going to block all the time during the day. And honestly, at the majority of NHRA races, like you don't have to deal with a nighttime situation, right? But inevitably at some point we will. And then it becomes like, okay, is it dark enough to pull down the blinder? And then, you know, what is my natural spot, so to speak, versus my blinder spot? Like, how am I going to compensate for that? It's just a whole lot of variables to think about. And to try to determine, plus there's the inevitable like dusk or even dawn situation where you're questioning, like, am I going to get enough glare around the blinder that I should take it down? Should I leave it up? Like, it's just another thing to think about that I think could largely be eliminated. Another problem, so to speak, or something that takes a lot of discipline, I think, with a blinder is particularly as the faster car. Like, it's one thing when you know that the tree's coming, you know? as a faster car on a, on a big spot, you know, like two, three, four seconds, you're kind of trying to count that off in your mind, or maybe you're looking around the blinder to see the other side of the tree come down to, to tell you when to be ready. Cause I think we all have a, a window of focus that is probably tighter than we'd like to admit. I mean, you can see that just if you're using, if you're hitting a practice tree on like pro tree or top bubble with a delay box, like Jack with the auto start settings, like you can move it half a second. It doesn't seem like much and you're just completely out to lunch. You know what I mean? Like it, the tree just comes on when you're not ready. Um, so that inherently becomes a challenge. And I think ultimately I would stray more toward and, and have strayed more toward just trying to get as good as I can be at focusing on the third light, but seeing the rest come down in my peripheral, like kind of knowing that it's coming. And admittedly in doing that, I may give away a little bit during the day, right? I may not be as consistent as a blocker. I may not be con as consistent as I would blocking, but I think by and large, I'm willing to trade off that, you know, whatever that may be, two, three, five percent that I might give up to be like 70% better when the sun goes down or in those odd situations where it's so easy to make a, a dramatic mistake with the blinder. So it kind of ties back earlier when you're talking about confidence. Like I, yeah. I, I started blocking just because 
it just it gave me a lot of confidence whether it's it's a crutch right like it's there but boy like you said when the sun or when it goes down or it gets night like it, it does the opposite it rips any confidence you have because you're like holy crap now what so definitely well, Luke, you you mentioned um uh when you were answering uh the last question that jake had about pre-stage you kept saying i reference i reference so are you saying that when you're pre-stage and your opponent's pre-staged you're looking over at your opponent and just trying to see okay we're dead even right now this is what it's going to look like yeah i actually I, you talk to like um really proficient finish line drivers if you took 10 of them you, you get a handful of different strategies but i think by and large uh, you get a lot of racers that the question is like what are you looking at as you approach the finish line right and in my experience with, with really good finish line drivers, it's about 50-50, like half are looking at the front end or the front wheel of their opponent's car. Um, what I adopt, the other half adopts the, the strategy that I do, which I call the 90-degree rule. So I'm actually referencing directly 90 degrees across from myself uh, a point on my opponent's car. Maybe that's the vent window. Maybe it's a contingency decal, you know, in dragsters, maybe it's the windshield or the cage or something like that. And as we go down the racetrack, I'm simply trying, it, assuming that I, I make the decision that I want to cross the finish line first, I'm just trying to position myself just ahead of that mark. So that's, and, and when I reference that is when we both pre-stage. And obviously that can be a little bit tricky if you're like, say in, in super gas, what, what I run typically, like you have to keep in mind that the, pre-stage and stage beams are an inch and a half off the ground and the finish line beams are six inches off the ground, you know, so a, a, a front end won't trip the stage beams, but will often trip the finish line beams. Um, so you have to take that into consideration. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's the methodology. I picked that up years and years ago and I'm just more comfortable with it. And like I say, I don't, I don't think that that the 90 degree rule per se is like a necessity by any means. Cause you talk to a lot of great finish line drivers that, that aren't comfortable with that or just don't do it that way. But that is the way that I do it personally. Good to know. Um, diet. What do you eat when you're at the races? I mean, I so, learned that about myself, like stop eating the damn cheeseburgers. Like <laughs> I try to eat fruit now, you know, stay awake if you will. <laughs> My uh, really catalyzed by, by my wife, um, but we've both been probably to be completely fair and honest, like her more than me, but we've been on a, on a health journey probably the last three or four years that has really changed my outlook just in terms of, of self-awareness. Like I am I'm more conscious of what I eat, what I put into my body and far more aware of how it impacts me in terms of mood, in terms of energy, in terms of concentration, stuff that, that never crossed my mind um, 10 years ago. So yeah, I'm, I'm really regimented in that regard. I, uh, one thing that I've done, and again, like people ask like, what, what should I, how should I eat? How should I drink on race day? Like, I think it's more a question of like, how should you eat? How should you drink every day? Like, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that changing up your personal habits on race day is necessarily a good idea. Like you probably want to stick with whatever your body is used to. Obviously better habits in life are probably better for a number of reasons, but I, th I think can also show up on the racetrack. So personally, um, one thing that I feel like has helped me is it's been several years ago now, but I, I cut out sodas in general and, and really, any type of sugary drinks like i don't even drink gatorade like it, i'm pretty much water period um day in day out and then specifically at the racetrack i feel like a it's easier to stay hydrated and b it's just consistent in terms of blood sugar whatever like and, and i feel that in in terms of keeping a more even keel 
And then as far as, um, you know, what, what I'm eating, um, like I, I'm not going to be the, the proponent, like I'm not the world's best, particularly at the racetrack of keeping my diet just super regimented. Like it's, it's difficult to do. Um, but I'm a big fan of a eating as healthy as I can and B what I try to stay away from personally is big meals in general, like whether they're, they're super healthy or not. Um, I feel like they kind of, to some extent, like lug me down. If I feel really hungry and need to eat, I'll usually do it like right after a round or a run where I, I'm getting the maximum amount of time prior to the next round to, to digest and kind of recover. But by and large, like I'm personally a big fan of snacking pretty regularly, like eating uh, a number of times, but never a particularly big meal. So I'll, I like uh, granola bars and and um, I'll do something to get protein. Like I'll even just roll up, um, you know, cold cuts or something like that and, and, and munch on them without the bread. I feel like the gluten in general is not, slows me down a little bit, but yeah, I, I try to focus on things like that. Small stacks, cashews are really good. Um, things like that to try to keep energy levels up without just weighing you down. I think the, now. hear that Brian. Yeah. I learned the new word for uh, fancy lunchables is a charcuterie board. So I'm going to have to pack one of those in every trailer now. <laughs> I didn't even know how to pronounce that. So I'm glad you got that out. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I, uh, I know what I've learned in the last year from being on elite is a lot of kind of what you've talked about. It's just, it really kind of simplifies and helps. Like when we originally started this podcast, I thought we should call it class racing for dummies because I kind of consider myself as not knowing anything. So I know it's really your, the elites man is really what I owe a lot of any kind of success I've had so far to that and breaking it down and simplifying it, making it understandable. Um, tell us a little bit about the elite program and how you get involved in that. From a, from a broad standpoint, Brian, like, I think we all want to want a, a quick fix of some regard. Like you know, there's gotta be one big thing that I'm missing. And, and rarely is, is that the case? Like probably in any pursuit, but specifically in racing. And actually we had a, a, a new member orientation call last night with an elite and uh, the racer put it in a way that one of our, one of our new members put it in a way that I'd never really heard. And I loved, and he basically said, my question for him was, what are you looking to get out of this experience? You know, as a, as a member of this is bracket racing elite. And he thought about it for a second. He said, I'll be honest. He says, uh, I'm not, I, I've raced long enough and I've had enough success. Like I'm not out looking to pick up dollar bills on the ground. I'm looking to pick up pennies and eventually they'll add up. And I think that's an awesome way to look at probably growth in general and specific to what we do with an elite. It's, it's not one big thing. It's a million little things that compound over time. And, and help get there. And so, yeah, to your point, like our, what I keep referring to is this is bracket racing elite. It's uh, it's our premier membership community within this is bracket racing.com. Um, within that community uh, members, not only have access to our entire library of lessons, which is immense at this point, we've been doing this for a lot of years. So there's like 400 plus lessons. Lessons are usually uh, either some of our OG stuff was, was written lessons, uh, more probably 80% of what we got now are, are, are video trainings that are anywhere from like 10 to 20 minutes in length each. And you can imagine if there's 400 of them, like we touch on ev just about every possible subject you could imagine and take a pretty deep dive into it. 
Um, so that's all there at your fingertips as a member. Now, 400 of those can be a little bit overwhelming, right? So the big catalyst uh, within Elite is the, the community aspect of it. So within the community, we post a new lesson each week, obviously draw attention to that. And we've got an opportunity for members to converse, to discuss, to ask questions, both of uh, our instructors, which is myself and, and five-time NHRA world champion, Justin Lamb, as well as each other. And it just kind of, if nothing else, it keeps racing at the forefront of mind. We have immense, um, deep, you know, at times discussions on so many different aspects of our game. And then obviously there is a, a, a human interaction facet to it. Uh, at least once a week, we get together for live chats within the community. They're usually hosted by Justin and or myself and or an outside expert um, or sometimes an internal expert, you know, a member of This Is Bracket Racing Elite, in which we just talk racing, talk about what it is that, you know, our members are, are struggling with or is on their mind at that moment in an effort to, you know, kind of communally, like this is a, a big ask, but we all just try to take one step forward each and every day to, to becoming just a little bit better, to just sharpening the sword a little bit and ultimately working toward becoming the, the best version of ourselves on the racetrack. You know, it's kind of crazy nowadays when you look at all the tools out there, like who would race without a weather station? Like there's still people that do it and can be successful at it. And then, you know, all of a sudden you look at, so I'm not a, I'm not a logbook guy. I got crew chief pro, all the weather data goes in, I'm by myself, but you know, simplifying it and how much easier does that make a dialing a car? I mean, the thing we got to realize is no matter how good you are, there's people that are working at this every single day to try to get better. And it's getting, I mean harder and harder every day i know the probably one of the biggest things that helped me was the fact that now you get these lessons all every week but now is the time to work on it like you put your cars away you kind of go to sleep and you're like hey i want to work on reaction times alexi you know you're a day before you're going to the track oh crap i was going to work on this all winter and get better at my reaction time and i haven't even looked at it i mean it's kind of like out of sight out of mind and i think that's one of the most important things I've found is being able there and having that constant slow drip mentality, you know. We're all guilty of becoming creatures of habit, you know, like, hey, this is, this is, why do I do things this way? Because I've always done things that way, right? And, and at one time, it probably served us, right? But maybe it doesn't currently, you know, and to your point, like, there are, there are people working on this stuff, there are technological advancements every other day, seemingly. And, you know, that, that method of, you know, not keeping a logbook or, or not, maybe it's not even not having a weather station, but not completely understanding what you're doing with it or using it to its full potential. Like those days are, I don't want to say gone, but there is value to that stuff. And that's part of what a, what a community like Elite preaches is that if nothing else, it, it constantly provides the, the, the newest information or a different look, right? A different mindset. And it's not like you're going to adopt everything that, that we throw out there. Like, I don't even adopt everything that we throw out there, right? But occasionally something is going to come up that's going to stick, that's going to help catalyze that incremental growth. I know, if, I know for myself, I always, I, I was joking about the other day, but I'm like, admission fees are the same whether you do good or not. Like, they don't give you a refund if you go out first round. Oh, here, here's half your money back. Like, the initial investment of getting to the track, the fuel to get there, all that stuff's the same for everyone. It's like, and I know like for myself, I'm on a pretty tight budget starting, you know, yeah, I'm racing stock, but it's cheaper for me to invest into my men mental state and the game and strategy than it is to 
pick my car up three, four tenths. Like that's, that's out of the yeah. realm, but putting money into myself should help. Anytime you go, you should be more competitive. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at it through that framework, like it seems kind of silly. Why wouldn't you want to bring the best version of yourself to the racetrack? You know, why wouldn't you try to be your, be your best? You know, people will be like, oh, you know, oh, that's so expensive. Why do you do this? Why do you do that? I'm like, what do you pay a month in cable? My dish network went before I canceled it was 160 bucks a month. And all it did was eat your time in life. Like, you know, <laughs> right, right. We, we look at what we spend on things and you put it into the uh, just different context of, you know, do you want to get better or do you want to stay the same? And I do, I do appreciate you having that community. I'm glad that I saw it and got involved. Um, but it is a limited time to get in, right? Or how often do you do enrollment or how does that process look? Yeah, we only, uh, we only open enrollment to elite two times a year um, for two reasons. Number one is uh, we're a small team and the, the demand is pretty immense, right? So uh, it, it allows us to focus on that. And then I think probably more importantly than that is that open enrollment allows us, we do it twice a year. We do it right now as an open enrollment period uh, and we, we shut the doors again on Friday. And then we won't open enrollment again until uh, a week in June, typically. Uh, so twice a year. And the reason being, again, small team on our end, it allows us to kind of focus on the marketing efforts for two, three weeks out of the year. And then the other 49, it, it allows us to really drill into serving our customer base, right? And so we can we can go all in on marketing and then we can go all in on, okay, let's, let's help these people that, that believe in this thing and that have invested in it and that want to get better. And Luke, for the people that uh, just can't do the elite program, you have the regular traditional, this is bracketracing.com, multiple articles. Like, like I said, my last two races, I'll say, didn't like the way I drove the finish line. I need help with my finish line skills. You have a lesson for finish line. Or, you know, my lights haven't been so great the last couple of races. You have lessons on starting line. Like, so there's an a la carte kind of uh, program as well. Yeah, 100%. And I, I would almost even break it up into three tiers. Like, if you are a racer, odds are like you have visions of becoming a better racer. And I would argue we can help. So even if it's um, go on thisisbracketracing.com, whether it's looking through some of the free resources like blogs, our podcast, um, we put a number of things out there that I think can be helpful, right? that don't cost a thing, right? So, so take a gander at that and see if it piques your interest. And then if or when circumstances allow, like, okay, like, hey, I, I like what I'm seeing. I'm in a position in life where I can invest in it, right? And, and, and I, I don't want to go deeper. To your point, Bobby, we've got a handful of, well, probably a dozen, what we call master courses is probably the next tier, which typically our master course is one specific element of racing. Let's say, a top bulb reaction time or bottom bulb reaction time. And that uh, master course would include 10 of our most popular um, lessons on that specific subject. So we've got a finish line master course. We've got a mental game master course. We've got a strategy master course, et cetera. Um, and then the third tier is obviously membership in the elite community, which is unlimited access to all of that and more, um, plus direct access to the community and to Justin and myself. Excellent. Well, I'm going to check that out for sure. Uh, anybody that's out there, why not go on there? This is bracketracing.com. Check out the free material and uh, pique your interest, especially your starting line abilities because I'm on Drag Insights right now, and I just saw that your average reaction time in Super Comp is an 0-12 uh, since 2015, so that's pretty amazing. <laughs> Sounds pretty good when you say it like that, yeah. 
<laughs> or so. for if you live under a rock and you haven't heard of the Sportsman's Drag Racing podcast with Luke and Jed, another great resource. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of fun with the podcast. We, we're we're recording our potties tonight, so that'll be fun. That's our that's our annual award show. <laughs> yeah, I will. Uh, that was the first podcast I ever actually listened to. I helped Craig build this place, and I was looking and. Actually, my buddy John McLaughlin's like, you got to listen to Luke and Jed. It's awesome. So awesome job there. Knowing what actually goes into these, like you're killing it. You make it look so easy. Well, I think a lot of that, like we've been doing that five years or so now. And to your earlier point, um, it's such a time commitment and it's such a, uh, there's so much more work behind the scenes, you know, to what you guys do than, than most people realize. I, I can honestly say as much as I love doing it and as much as I love, you know, having a, a voice kind of broadly, you know, within the sports and integration community, it's an opportunity for me to talk, not necessarily about my own racing, not necessarily about teaching the game, just about what's going on in the sport, right. And, and shedding that spotlight on other racers. As much as I love that, I don't know that I would be five years into a weekly, con- weekly podcast if it wasn't for getting to do it with Jed, like that dude is so fun. And just you can't be around him and not smile and be entertained. Like, I don't, I don't know if I could have another podcast partner where I'd be like, yeah, I'm all in. Like, let's let's go for year number six. And with Jed, like, it's it's cool. It's an opportunity to talk to Jed once a week, and I, I can't I can't pass that up. I'm gonna have to step up my game because that's probably what Bobby thinks. Man, I wonder if there's any other partners out here that would make this thing fun. <laughs> I make Bobby miserable, so you guys can go to our website now, and there's a donate now button, and you can help support the cause. But. that's the other aspect of, of podcasting like not the most profitable endeavor in the world if you guys if you guys figure that out let me know <laughs> yeah <laughs> we will don't worry i think picking up beer cans on the side of the interstate in a dry county <laughs> would be a little more <laughs> a little more rewarding but you know we don't necessarily do it to for that aspect it's just fun to talk about it and spread the message and 100 and we've got some people that are helping you know support and i do appreciate that and like i said we're trying to make it easier if you guys do want to support us our website's live now and going and there is a donate now button so we're making it easy for everybody asking um i appreciate your time luke i guess before we let you go is there anybody you'd like to thank and let us know how we find you and any sponsors or anybody you want to yeah, I mean, I go on the list, like from a racing standpoint, it obviously starts here at home with my family, my wife, Jessica. I have, I've been pretty open about this. It was just a couple of years ago that uh, like I was interested in other pursuits. I was kind of burnt out on racing and, you know, young family and everything like that. And I, I went to Jess and I was like, should we just, I don't know if you want to sell anything. You want to just take a year or two off? And she's like, no, why would we do that? Like we're, we're going racing. So she really drove that more than I did at, at one point and, and kept that going. And it's cool. It's so fun on my end to be so passionate about this sport, but to be surrounded by my wife, really both of my, my young sons that are as, or maybe even more gung ho about it than I am like that, that definitely makes it fun and makes it easier to justify the, the time and energy and commitment that we, we all put into this game. So definitely there, um, race car wise like we had an awesome season this season uh particularly in super gas and a lot of that goes back to my car like i can't say enough about charlie stewart race cars and and the machine that he's built me in that c7 corvette that thing's amazing i think as evidenced not only by the super gas world championship but when we decided to to bracket race it which we haven't done much 
we went to the great american guaranteed million and that thing went 482 like every freaking round and it's 35 degrees outside or something crazy like you wouldn't think that would be the tool for the job and it just kept doing it like the car is amazing so kudos to them and then uh, on a business standpoint um i tend to to get most of the the praise for what we've built with this is bracket racing and this is bracket racing elite is sort of the face of it but there is a great team behind the scenes there that at this point, the way that things grown, I could not do it without. Obviously, it starts with Justin Lamb, who I talked about earlier, but we've got a team that includes Jordan Pratt, Jacob Murphy, Ashley Thompson, uh, Amanda Campbell. And what what those people that are, who are all racers, who all came to us, you know, at first as, as members of This Is Bracket Racing Elite and then ultimately joined our team, they keep this thing rolling and make it look good. And that they're what they're a big part of what makes this beneficial to some many racers well, awesome like i said we uh we appreciate your time we know you're a, a busy guy and tied up now with the enrollment going so thanks for coming and making uh making us all a little better in the stock super stock community but man i appreciate the opportunity this has been a lot of fun i uh, love what you guys are doing and like i say i know that uh that in this day and age it's been like a decade since i staged in stock eliminator it doesn't seem that long ago so i i, I feel like i'm not all that removed from it but i'm pretty removed for it so i appreciate you guys kind of going out on a limb having me on here and uh, getting to talk to your audience and uh, if the opportunity ever presents itself again i'd love to jump back on fantastic thanks luke this is bracketracing.com check it out get signed up for the elite program <laughs> join brian and learn <laughs> uh bobby and brian thanks a lot Again, classracingtoday.com is live now uh, with the op- opportunity to help support the show. If you get value out of the show, decide what that value is and turn it into some dollars and throw it our way so we can continue to have these uh, podcasts and get great guests like Luke on. Thanks again, Luke. Have a wonderful day. Everyone else, stay safe, and we will see you out on the next one. Have a great day.